Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Hello again. The purpose of Creation, Myth, or Miracle is to look at the world around us and compare what we observe with two worldviews. The biblical worldview, which accepts the statements of the Bible as actual history, and thus a six-day creation a few thousand years ago, and contrast that with the standard Western mainstream scientific worldview, which is a Big Bang 13.5 billion years ago and undirected biological evolution accounting for all of life. And yesterday we began to look at some observations in geology that are rather interesting given the standard explanations. But before we get back to that, I want to take a look at the evolutionist miracle of the day, and that would be the origin of proteins. Last week, over at the Evolution News blog, Michael Behe commented on an article in the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. Now, before we look at the specifics of this, don't forget, evolution is a fact, according to academia, and all undergraduate students are flat told that everything is explained by evolution theory. So let's see how well that holds up when you take a glimpse into the details of a magazine for professionals. Quote, Overall, what the field of protein evolution needs are some plausible, solid hypotheses to explain how random sequences of amino acids turn into the sophisticated entities that we recognize as proteins. Now, proteins are absolutely essential for life. And are you telling me that the field of evolution doesn't have any plausible hypothesis to explain how proteins are formed? you got to be kidding me. Now, remember how I've often commented on how carefully evolutionists word things that are presented to the public. For example, direct conflicts with evolution theory are supposed to be referred to as sheds new light. See previous broadcasts of mine. Michael Behe noted that the print copy of the magazine, which he gets as a member, has the article titled, Close to a Miracle, Researchers are Debating the Origins of Proteins. But the online version has had the title changed, and it reads, Close to a Miracle, Researchers are Debating Whether Function or Structure First Appeared in Primitive Peptides. Notice the change in title. Behe says it sounds like somebody leaned a bit on the headline writer. Well, of course, the original title, Researchers Are Debating the Origins of Proteins, implies the factual evidence that they don't know anything about the origins of these proteins. By changing it to a false dichotomy that they're debating whether function or structure first appeared in primitive peptides, That's not the debate. The debate is how the heck did these things get assembled at all? Well, to understand the significance of this, we need to look just a little bit at how proteins are put together. What do they consist of? Well, from a simplified perspective, proteins are lengthy chains of amino acids. And these chains have amino acids in a very specific sequence. But these aren't just any amino acids. They have to be left-handed amino acids. We spoke about this in some detail on previous broadcasts. There isn't any naturalistic way to produce only left-handed amino acids. 
and the presence of right-handed amino acids would screw things up. So first, you somehow have to get left-handed amino acids only and get a very pure mixture of these highly concentrated in the same locale at the same time. That's a sequence of events that will never happen in a purely naturalistic scenario outside of a cell which already has this environment. There is no hypothesized environment in which that would occur. But then once you have these optically pure, as they're called, left-handed only pure amino acids, now you have to assemble them in exactly the right sequence. And many people have done probability arguments looking at assembling a single protein molecule just by random chance and getting a functional order. And it's simply absurd that it would ever happen in the entire history of the universe, even if the entire universe was trying to do it a billion times a second. Okay, so let's assume somehow that that still happened, that we got a sequence of amino acids, left-handed only, and they're in a proper functional sequence. Now are we done? Not even close. In order for a protein to function in a cell, it has to be folded correctly into its own complex three-dimensional shape. You see, cells don't only create protein molecules, they fold them. Well, how big a deal is that? Well, a few years ago, IBM built the world's most powerful supercomputer, which was dubbed Blue Gene. It was created back in 2005, specifically to tackle the problem of protein folding. The IBM website said the following, The scientific community considers protein folding to be one of the most significant grand challenges, a fundamental problem in science, whose solution can be advanced only by applying high-performance computing technologies. Proteins control almost all cellular processes in the human body. Comprising strings of amino acids that are joined like links of a chain, a protein folds into a highly complex, three-dimensional shape that determines its function. Any change in shape dramatically alters the function of a protein, and even the slightest change in the folding process can turn a desirable protein into a disease. So IBM didn't consider protein folding to be a simple job, did they? In fact, it was estimated that it would take one year for BlueGene to finish its calculations and model the folding of a simple protein. How long do you think it takes for a living cell to actually fold one? It's under one second. One IBM researcher had said, it's absolutely amazing the complexity of the problem and the simplicity with which the body does it every day. So I hope with just this brief glimpse into what our protein actually consists of, you could understand why expert researchers would say this is close to a miracle. Now, as a creationist, I would disagree. I would say it is a miracle. The origin of life screams out for a supernatural cause. The idea that purely naturalistic forces acting according to naturalistic laws could produce a protein and a living cell is truly absurd. As we've mentioned before, everyone who thinks about life at all has to believe in miracles. The difference for a Christian who believes in miracles is we have an adequate source for them. The atheist has no source for the miracles. And hence, some are trying to avoid the whole question and simply saying, aliens did it. So there really isn't any non-creationist explanation for how proteins came to be. 
What other types of improbable events do we observe around us? How many of you heard about the recently discovered fossilized mosquito that still contained traces of preserved blood from its recent meal? This was documented in the National Academy of Sciences recently and also commented on over at the journal Nature's website. Well, what did they find and how do they explain it? Quote, the preservation of fossil female mosquito was an extremely improbable event. The insect had to take a blood meal, be blown to the water's surface, and sink to the bottom of a pond or similar lacustrine structure to be quickly embedded in fine anaerobic sediment, all without disruption of its fragile, distended, blood-filled abdomen. Now, anaerobic sediment means no oxygen. Now, the shale sediment that this was found in is supposed to be 46 million years old, according to geologists. Thus, they say this fossilized mosquito must have been fossilized, blood and all, 46 million years ago. We've discussed previously the difficulty with having complex biological molecules survive for millions of years. In fact, over at Nature's website, it says it was, quote, a long shot that the blood was found still intact. Quote, the abdomen of a blood-engorged mosquito is like a balloon ready to burst. It is very fragile. The chances that it wouldn't have disintegrated prior to fossilization were infinitesimally small. What this is really telling us is that the conditions under which this mosquito was captured and then fossilized are not the types of conditions that we're currently observing. Something else was going on, and it happened very, very quickly. Furthermore, once it was entombed and not destroyed, the fact that the complex biological molecules did not completely dissolve clearly implies it's nowhere near that old. That's just plain old chemistry. So we have yet another quandary for mainstream science. Something of infinitesimally small probability must have occurred. So we seem to have a continual stream of improbable fossilizations that contain biological materials still after millions and millions of years, which defies known chemistry. I'm sure this will continue as we continue to look at these fossils carefully. But let's get back for a bit to geology. On yesterday's show, we talked about the island Circe, which popped up and looked millions of years old when it was extremely young. And we also discussed the fact that standard geology can't explain the large landforms that we see, such as mountain ranges and planation surfaces. It's very clear that different and much larger forces were involved in creating these landforms than the forces that are operating now. Well, that's not a surprise for those of us who acknowledge the historical account of the Genesis Flood. That is a one-time, enormous, catastrophic event. If it really happened, we would expect to see structures and evidence within the surface of the Earth that imply events of enormous magnitude of energy and short duration of time, and that perspective goes a long way toward explaining the things that mainstream geology struggles with. So let's talk a bit briefly now about one obvious and very interesting type of geological observation, and that is layers, large layers, many, many thick layers of sediment that are now rock, and that traveled along horizontally, all parallel, 
and then are radically bent and deformed. To help in picturing this, imagine you had several different colors of modeling clay, and you made yourself layers, one on top of the other, nice and horizontal, and where you can see from the side each of the different colored layers. And then you take the whole thing and bend it 90, 120 degrees right in the middle, and then bend it back the other direction and create this warping of these layers. When you look at it from the side, you would still see all the different colors of modeling clay. You would see them travel along horizontally, and then you'd see them bend radically and follow the deformation that you forced it to have. All the while, the individual layers retaining their integrity. They're not blended together somehow. We'll now picture a similar type of structure with thousands of feet of solid rock. And the interesting question is, how can the rock be bent without being broken? It's easy to picture how this could occur if you allow the possibility that enormous structures of sedimentary layers could form quickly, like in a global flood, and that while still soft, tectonic forces and earth movement forces could cause the bending of the whole set of layers, just like you just bent your modeling clay. However, if you try to stick with a mainstream interpretation of the origin of these strata, not only did it take a very long time for the thickness of strata to be laid down, but additionally, in most cases, it is believed that the time at which they bent was millions of years after the layers were laid down. I'll provide a link to a great article over at ICR.org that describes one particular formation, the Split Mountain Formation down in San Diego County in Southern California. This visible structure actually includes 17,000 feet of sediments. Now the layers toward the bottom are under thousands of feet of sediment on top of them, and this environment should have consolidated the grains and provided the proper cement to bind them all together and to lithify or turn it to solid rock much more quickly than the standard interpretation requires. Attempts to explain how these rocks could have stayed soft for millions of years have simply failed. And since the folding is supposed to occur millions of years after they formed, there have been attempts to explain how they could have been bent after having been turned to solid rock without breaking them. The claim that's out there is that deeply buried rocks can be slowly deformed and you can get extensive bending like this. But the facts are that there's a limit to how much solid rock, which is notoriously weak under tension, can bend without breaking. And the outer half of each layer would undergo tension at every single bend, which would lead to breakage on the outer side. When examined closely, the strata don't even show any evidence of broken cement grains. There's no evidence at all that these were deformed, while anything other than still plastic and soft. So in order to stick with the standard explanation as to how these structures were formed, you either have to believe that deeply buried sediments stayed soft and pliable for millions of years, or that hard, brittle rocks bent with virtually no breaking or cracking. The physical evidence is completely consistent with a global flood. But, if you insist there never was any such flood, then you have no mechanism to explain the observation. So when we look into the layers of rock around us, we have a growing list of finds 
that all appear to have happened quickly or be young just based on their physical appearance. For example, the bent strata we just described. The island of Circe, which we know is young, but similar-looking structures are claimed to be millions of years old elsewhere. The ongoing finds of biological material and soft tissues in millions of years old fossils, such as the T-Rex with its soft tissue finds, and the mosquito that we just described earlier with blood remnants still remaining. There's many types of evidence like this that aren't consistent with millions of years of age. So, why is it that millions of years is believed to be true? The main answer that has always ultimately fallen back to is radiometric dating. Well, what is that? Wikipedia's description is as follows. Radiometric dating, often called radioactive dating, is a way to find out how old something is. The method compares the amount of a naturally occurring radioactive isotope and its decay products in samples. The method uses known decay rates. It's the main way to learn the age of rocks and other geological features, including the age of the Earth itself. It may be used to date a wide range of natural and man-made materials. Fossils may be dated by taking samples of rocks from above and below the fossil's original position. Radiometric dating is also used to date archaeological materials, including ancient artifacts. Radiometric dating techniques are used to establish the geological time scale. Among the best-known techniques are radiocarbon dating, potassium-argon dating, and uranium-lead dating. And the basic technique for all of them is essentially the same. It boils down to noticing that a particular element, such as potassium, is unstable and decays into daughter elements, such as argon. So if we measure a sample today and see how much potassium and how much argon the sample contains and make several assumptions, we can then try to calculate how old that sample is. And Wikipedia describes some of the preconditions, as they call it, or the assumptions, as I refer to it, that are needed to apply this technique. It says the method works best if neither the parent nuclide, the parent element, potassium in this example, nor the daughter product, argon, enters or leaves the material after its formation. Anything which changes the relative amounts of the two isotopes, the original element and the daughter element, must be noted and avoided if possible. Contamination from outside or the loss of isotopes at any time from the rock's original formation would change the result. It is therefore essential to have as much information as possible about the material being dated and to check for possible signs of alteration. Now, because it's possible for these types of contamination or movement of isotopes in or out of the rock sample to cause an inaccurately calculated age, it is actually requested that the expected age of a sample be provided as they attempt to calculate an age. And in fact, the calculated radiometric dates are always compared to the assumption of the history of the structure they're in to decide if they're even usable or not. Now, before I studied this topic many years ago, I thought you could take a rock, send it to a lab, tell them nothing else except, here's the rock, and they would turn around and tell you how old that rock is. That's not accurate at all. In fact, let me give you one example of how these techniques were applied to a particularly important area where very important fossils were found. 
In East Rudolph, Kenya, there's a layer of volcanic ash approximately three feet thick that's called the KBS Tuff. And because it's volcanic ash, it has potassium in it and so can be dated by the potassium-argon dating technique. And note that it is assumed that the KBS Tuff, its age, is an upper age limit for any items that are found above it. Thus, everything above it can't be older than the KBS Tuff, and everything below it can't be younger than the KBS Tuff. And back in 1969, the KBS Tuff was dated with the potassium-argon technique on raw rocks, and they calculated an age of 212 to 230 million years. So was that calculated age believed to be accurate? Absolutely not. Well, why not? Because there were fossils and artifacts associated with this tuff believed to be much, much younger than that, on the order of 1 to 2 million years at most. So they calculate 212 to 230 million years and then say, quote, From these results, it was clear that an extraneous argon age discrepancy was present. It would only be possible to date this tuff by careful extraction of undoubtedly juvenile components for analysis. Well, what does this mean? Extraneous argon age discrepancy means, based on the large amount of argon there, we calculated that the radioactive decay had been occurring for over 200 million years, but since we know it can't have been going on that long, there is too much argon, extraneous argon. And oh, by the way, since argon is a gas, it can move in and out of rocks, so we will just say it's quite obvious there's extraneous argon in this sample. Now, what was measured? Argon was measured. What gets thrown out? The measured data. But then they go on to say, it would only be possible to date this tuff by careful extraction of undoubtedly juvenile components for analysis. That's a clear admission that if you pick different parts of it, you can get different ages calculated. So let me translate the whole thing for you. This age is known to be wrong because the associated fossils can't be that old, so selectively massage the data until a good result is obtained. The issue is that the potassium-argon whole rock technique essentially assumes that all of the argon is a result of the decay of the potassium, but it's known that this is not true for some volcanic rocks. Several instances of young volcanic rocks from volcanoes that were observed have been dated with potassium argon and ages in the millions of years calculated. And that simply proves that there's actually argon still there when the volcanic rock solidifies in contradiction to the assumption of the dating technique. So just understand that it's quite possible to decide that a calculated age is invalid and discard it and that that has occurred many, many times in the literature. Now, creationist critics of this technique pose a simple question. If we can't apply the technique to rocks of known age and get a correct answer, why do we believe the answer is correct when applied to rocks of unknown age? That is a valid question. This topic needs a lot more attention because it's one of those critically important topics If radiometric dates are guaranteed to prove the Earth is billions of years old, then the creationist view of a six-day creation and a thousands-of-year-old Earth is completely wrong. So this is an important question. 
and we'll spend some time discussing this in more detail in upcoming shows. Here's one little teaser. Radioactive decay rates are always talked about as being absolutely constant. And yet, did you know there's a new technique being investigated to anticipate solar flares? Those huge eruptions on the surface of the sun that can disrupt our communications and be a danger to astronauts and satellites? Well, how the heck could we predict those before they occur? How about because it is now known that somehow they affect radioactive decay rates and we can observe this change in the lab? It's believed it's caused by neutrino emissions that precede the solar eruptions. This is interesting stuff, and as a creationist, I have no fear of further knowledge in these areas. It always turns out to be consistent with the scriptural understanding. See creationmythormiracle.com.